You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Jerry Mueller, who is a professor of history at Catholic University of America, also the author of a number of books, most recent book. I think it's a bit of a departure from your intellectual history stuff. It's called The Tyranny of Metrics. In addition to that, he wrote a book called Capitalism and the Jews. We've got conservatism and anthology, Adam Smith and his time and ours, which I think I bought a couple decades ago. And this one right here, The Mind and the Market, which is really is real classic, walking through all the different ways that certain thinkers have approached what the market's all about and how it's impacted culture and society. It's really very, very interdisciplinary. But I want to focus on this book, Tyranny of Metrics, Jerry. And I love this book because as somebody who teaches in a business school, I spend a lot of time, I suppose I spend half my time trying to get people to take quantification more seriously and to distrust their soft judgment side and to look for some objective metrics that they can use to evaluate things and make decisions going forward. But then I probably spend at least as much time cautioning people about the abuse and misuse of data and metrics. And it's just like with vaccines, you know, you spend half your time trying to convince people that these things are the greatest things since sliced bread, but then you spend the other half of the time saying, hey, you know, watch out for big pharma, right? Like there's always two sides to everything. And so, so I'm wondering, first of all, what led you to write this book? Look, you're an historian, you're an intellectual historian, you sit at the intersection of politics and economics and history and all this. And this is a bit of a departure. So what led you to this book, Tyranny of Metrics? And then we'll jump into kind of what it's about, but I also just want to know like why you did this after a hiatus of book writing. Well, a lot of my work has been on the history of capitalism, of capitalist institutions, and the way in which intellectuals and leading analysts of capitalism from a variety of political and disciplinary perspectives have thought about its functioning and some of its cultural prerequisites and some of its cultural effects. So some of it then has to do with that longer-term interest in history of capitalism. From the work that I did on conservatism, there's a number of conservative thinkers in that book, like Michael Oakeshott and Friedrich Hayek, who were very critical of what you might call scientism. That is the notion that you can take the methods of the natural sciences, which are very much focused on math and data, or the mathematical manipulation of data, and apply them directly to the human sphere. Those were kind of the interests in the background. And then there were particular events in contemporary political life and in my own professional life that led me to see that there was this pattern, there was this kind of cultural belief system that if you measured things in some standardized way and you rewarded and punished people and you incentivized people by giving them rewards for doing well on the measures and penalize them for doing badly on the measures. And if you made all this public in the form of what's sometimes called transparency, that this was kind of a magic bullet that would solve the problems of public institutions like schools and universities and private institutions like businesses and, of course, governmental institutions. I first felt this in a tangible way when I looked at the discussion around No Child Left Behind 
in the educational field that was adopted in the early years of the George W. Bush administration. And that notion of measuring and rewarding and punishing based on the measures and making the measures public, that was a key part of that package. And then it started to be felt at other places in the educational system, including in the universities. So I was a department chair in the mid 20 teens, and I started to find that there were more and more requests for data from my department, some of which was useful and a lot of which wasn't so useful. And one of the curious things was the people above me in the hierarchy, like the provost said, when I asked him, why do we need all this data? He said, we don't really, or I don't really know, but the Department of Education wants it, or the Association of Universities wants it, the accrediting agencies. So I then began to trace back this new organizational cultural mentality from my local instance, as it were, in the universities to the larger educational system. And then I saw it was part of a larger uh, notion of what's sometimes called new public management in government. And then when I traced it back, I saw that it actually tended to come from the private sector, from business. And within business, it tended to come from business schools and business consultants. And there's a room full of popular business books that assure you that if you use this formula of standardized measurement and reward and penalization and so on, that you're going to improve your business and so on. So I was struck then by the kind of ubiquity of this organizational culture. And as I say, my earlier work on the history of capitalism and on the history of conservative public policy analysis led me to a certain ingrained skepticism about the utility of these methods. And we can talk about the substance because they obviously do have some utility. I'm not against measurement and not against metrics per se, that's for sure. But it's the, as you indicated earlier, it's the one-sided use or misuse or abuse of this phenomenon that I'm concerned with in that book. And that book was actually it was suggested to me by my editor at Princeton University Press, Peter Dougherty, who's done a tremendous amount to bring economic knowledge to uh, wider audiences in an interdisciplinary way. And so he told me I should write it. <laughs> Once I decided to write it, then I started to read in a wide variety of fields, some of which I was already familiar with, and some of which, some fields of motivational psychology and organizational behavior and so on were relatively new to me, but I got up to speed, as it were. And then I began to investigate the incidence of this kind of what I call metric fixation in a wide variety of institutions, in education, in higher education, in medicine, in foreign aid, in policing, and of course, in business. Well, let's start by sticking up for metrics, <laughs> at least initially, because even though you point back to even the early 19th century with educational movements and look, the idea has been around for a long time that we need to kind of question judgment and so forth. But I find that even today, we still have to remind people that their judgment is not infallible. And I think you set it up a bit. It's a bit of a false dichotomy, of course, but there's this tension between what we might think of as judgment and what we might think of as a more quantitative approach. And, and the quantitative approach is built on a suspicion around professional judgment. And 
of course, the, the classic movie and book right, about Billy Bean, that's kind of where I start off my data science class, where the narrative is very simple. You've got these old baseball guys who have spent their whole life in the business and they look at a player and they say, well, you know, that player's got an ugly girlfriend, so it's not going to be any good, right? And and then the hero sweeps in with all of these analytical techniques and, and highlights that this is just confirmation bias and that this is just your gut instinct, which is built on messy theories that haven't been tested and, and we can apply some rigor. And this has really opened up a lot, right? I mean, we can do all sorts of things with data science and with machine learning and with a rigorous analytical approach to things. And I think there are still tons of people that need to be convinced of that. And then you also highlight that professional judgment is sort of the hiding place for all sorts of biases and racism and everything. And that's sort of why we moved towards using standardized test scores. And now we're seeing like, a, we're actually seeing a move back here at Berkeley. We, we got rid of standardized test scores and it's, we're using this like holistic admissions system, which a lot of people think is just a way of bringing the old boy system or racism or whatever, right back. So. Do we really think we've gone too far in that direction or is, I mean, there's still plenty of opportunity for questioning judgment. How do we strike that right balance between respect for judgment and skepticism around judgment? Right. So first of all, I should say, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not against measurement and I'm not against standardized measurement. There are many cases where measurement is absolutely essential and many others where it's desirable. And I'll get back to the issue of measurement and judgment in a second. But let me say that, for example, in terms of standardized test scores for getting into educational institutions, contrary to what you sometimes hear, a lot of studies, and actually my experience too, shows that those standardized test scores are actually very useful in determining who's likely to be successful in higher education. And eliminating them does discriminate against the more talented. So that's a case where I think standardized test scores, they shouldn't be the only thing that are taken into account, but they should play a very heavy role. And in terms of data science and that sort of thing, again, it can be very valuable. It depends on a couple of things. The kind of problem that I refer to as metric fixation is when you use standardized measurement to replace judgment and then pair that with the notion that since people respond to incentives, you ought to penalize them when their metrics are low and you ought to reward them when metrics are high. That creates a whole different dynamic than if you're measuring some process where people are not rewarded and punished based directly on those metrics. So if you're looking at something like how many people are buying some product or customer satisfaction or what have you, or many other areas, obviously, or it seems to me obvious that metrics are very useful and, and data science can be very useful in that regard too. To take a slight detour back into baseball, which is where you began, and which is an area in which I'm not that interested and not that familiar, but let me give you a couple of insights that I've gleaned from my reading on this. There's a book that came out recently by a scholar at Carnegie Mellon, his name is Phillips, about the use of metrics, history of the use of metrics in baseball. And it turns out that actually scouts always did use metrics, a crude kind of metrics of their own. But what's more interesting to me is 
what's happened to professional baseball since the sabermetrics revolution that you refer to. That namely, there's been a decline in interest in baseball. Here's essentially what happened. So everybody cottoned onto this sabermetrics that you had to measure everything that the batters did and so on. And one of the things they figured out was it was more efficient in terms of scoring to try to score home runs rather than singles or doubles or triples, right? And to do that, they trained batters to use this kind of launch angle, which has to do with the angle at which the bat hits the ball that makes it more likely that there'll be a home run. And so first one team did it. And after a while, of course, all the teams did it. And the result of that for Major League Baseball, as I understand it, is there are more home runs. There are fewer singles, doubles, and triples. So there are fewer people running around the bases. It's more a case of either a home run or a fly out or something like that. And as a result of the metricization of the game, it has become more standardized and hence less exciting and more boring and fewer people are watching it. So this is uh, one example of where metricization seen in the large could actually be counterproductive. That's not typical of many other institutions, but happens to be the case with baseball, which gathered so many people's attention. There's actually two things going on there, right? One is, you know, a failure to clarify what your objective function is, right? So is your objective to win games or is your objective to please fans, right? And those things might be different. They might even be at odds with each other. Yeah, they may be. And even if your objective is to simply win games, the other problem, and this I think is one that you really highlight, is this idea that if you can't measure it, therefore you can't control it, therefore you should ignore it. And I think with Billy Bean, they could measure pitching and hitting because they had good metrics for it, but they didn't have any metrics for fielding. And so they just kind of ignored it. As a result, they had terrible fielding because the only way to evaluate, at least at that time, was to rely on something that was a little less precise. And so I think one of the things that you're emphasizing is that there's a lot that we can't measure. And so if we can't measure it, then we do have to cultivate good judgment. And if you're de-emphasizing the judgment aspect, then there are going to be entire domains where you're going to wind up failing. Yeah, it's the problem that we call measurability bias. That is the tendency either to only consider the things that you can measure and to leave out the things that you can't, or to measure the things that are most easily measured, even if they're not the most relevant. That's the drunk in the lamppost problem, right? Yes. So one of the problems with measurability bias is that if you measure things and you have standardized measurement and you reward and punish people based on those measures, then a couple of things can happen. One is that they focus their attention and their effort on what gets measured and they marginalize all the things that aren't being measured. And some of the things that aren't being measured are often essential or at least highly desirable elements of any organization. So take things like mentoring, that is helping to train and promote the careers and create positive feeling and giving advice to people who are under you in the organization. You know, the difference between an organization that people want to work in and one that they don't often has to do with issues like mentoring and cooperation among peers. Cooperation among peers is also not 
easily measured or readily measured. But if individuals are incentivized to maximize their output of the particular thing that they're doing, then that will tend to make them less cooperative, less cooperative across personnel lines, less cooperative across parts of the institution as well. So one problem then is if you incentivize that which gets measured, you leave out important things that aren't being measured, and you incentivize people to focus on the things that aren't being measured at the expense of other goals and aspects of the job and of the organization that are not being measured or are not designated as a key performance indicator or what have you. And the truth is, if you're washing car windows, you have a fairly rather delimited set of tasks, right? But if you're in some more sophisticated job, there are probably many facets of your job. And if you're in a managerial position, there are many facets of that. And if you measure things and reward people based on those measures, it tends to lead them to focus on just one of the facets of their job at the expense of the other facets of the job. Or similarly, within an organization, you can incentivize a particular thing a particular KPI at the expense of some larger goal. So as a result of writing this book, I talk to people from many walks of life. I mean, I talked to them before in order to write the book too. But recently I was talking to a physician who told me about an emergency room system where they were told and they were incentivized that in order to try to ward off sepsis, they had to give antibiotics to patients coming in as soon as possible. So there was a metric according to which the emergency room was evaluated, time to antibiotic. From the time that the patient walked in the door, how long did it take to give the antibiotic? So as a result, every patient that came in, they gave antibiotics to. Now, there are some patients who had conditions where antibiotics was counterindicated. So in order to maximize the narrow measured metric, you actually do something that may cause harm and may be at odds with the goal of your organization. That's just one example among others, but it typifies the problem, I think. This is really inherent in the principal agent problem, right? So this is Milgram and, and Holmstrom. They wrote about this and they said that people are going to sacrifice activities that are not being rewarded and focus on those that are being rewarded. But I mean, this just goes back to Hayek, right? So when Hayek pointed out that an essentially planned system, you're, you say, hey, we need, we're going to evaluate your performance in the manufacture of tanks based on the tonnage of tanks. And so you're going to build like the heaviest tanks you can, right? And of course he talks about solutions to this, but it seems to be in, just inherent in the principal agent problem that if you're not the agent, you have to have some way of evaluating and monitoring the performance of the agent. You mean if you're not the principal? Well, if you're the principal, you have to figure out how to evaluate the agent. So you right, come up with right. some, you don't have complete visibility. So you have to kind of come up with some metric. And so is this just an argument in favor of investing more resources in developing more comprehensive metrics as opposed to being kind of lazy about it and picking a, a simplistic metric? I mean, take evaluating faculty, right? If you're evaluating based on the number of publications or you're evaluating on the basis of, say, teacher evaluations or some very simplistic thing, you're obviously going to miss a lot of what's important. But couldn't we just come up with a, like a, a multi-factor metric or a metric that has, okay, we're going to count 
not just the quantity of publications, but the quality of the publications. And we're not going to focus just on your publications. We're also going to look at your mentorship and we're going to have this massive scorecard with 50 different items that we've thought up. Right. So places, of course, try to do that as they become aware of the limits of a particular metric or a particular narrow set of metrics. They try to expand the number of metrics. So there's a problem with that too. And that is the more metrics you have, the more employee and management time is being put into measuring as opposed to doing. And especially since good metrics require input from the practitioners themselves, because they're actually more likely to know what's important and what's not. So it's good to have their input, but again, that takes some of their time. So there is a real tension between doing and measuring and coming up with the metrics and then producing the metrics and then analyzing the metrics. And this is where judgment comes in. That is those sorts of qualities that have to do with training, experience, and talent. And talent is the sort of thing that probably they don't like to talk about that much in business schools because it's not something that's easily quantifiable. It's not something that's easily teachable. It is something that after a while is recognizable, but talent, a good part of judgment then, has to do with knowing how significant a particular factor is, how significant a particular metric is, how important that metric is, and, and what that metric leaves out. And that's why it's my contention anyway, that part of judgment has to do with a kind of deep immersion in the particularities of the activity that you're involved in, the particular economic sector, the particular kind of company that you're in, the particular kind of university that you're working for, because they vary a lot too. And there's this tendency, again, business schools and managerial culture have played some role in this to say, well, we'll train managers and they can go from one company to another and one sector from another. And when they do that, it means they tend to have less deep, particular knowledge of the institution or the sector. And so how do you substitute for that? Well, with standardized metrics. Again, I can't say it often enough. Standardized metrics do have a positive role. They mitigate against various kinds of prejudice and against some kinds of biases. But when you put those metrics together with reward and punishment and transparency, you often get all kinds of dysfunctions. Right. So accounting, for instance, the whole point of accounting is so that the complexity of what's happening on the ground is simplified so that you can evaluate it. So the higher up you go in the organization, the more abstract the information has to be. And ultimately, you have a manager who can run a consumer products company one day and a <laughs> financial institution the next day. And, and they believe that the dashboard that they're looking at is kind of telling them more or less similar things, or somebody who's analyzing a stock can kind of float from stock to stock and have some sense of what's going on. But I mean, isn't this really fundamentally about humility? I have a colleague who, who says that if you ever offer an answer to a question without a confidence interval attached, then you should be guilty of malpractice. In other words, you can never know everything. So it's about knowing the limitations of what you know. And I think this is not just limited to the social sciences or to management. I mean, you see it in, in the natural sciences where people have a statistic and they don't understand the limitations of that statistic, whether it's coronavirus crisis, we could talk all day about that. 
But I remember probably 30 years ago, there were people that would say, oh yeah, breast milk, it's fat and carbs. That's it. Because they didn't know anything about the biome or anything like that. But all you have to do to tack on the end of that sentence is, so far, this is what we know, right? <laughs> like, and as long as you're at the end of every sentence, you say, there's probably a whole bunch of other stuff that we have yet to discover, then that's automatically going to cause you to behave differently with respect to that information. So isn't this just an argument in favor of intellectual humility? Yeah. So let me tackle it in two different ways. So one of the problems with what I call metric fixation is the belief that since you are measuring in a standardized way, you are engaged in an objective scientific activity. And therefore, it tends to militate against humility. That is to say, it gives you too much confidence in the metrics because, after all, you're doing science. And the other guy or gal, she's just working on her gut or on her intuition or on her so-called judgment. But I've got hard numbers, and hard numbers are that's what sent people into space. So they're going to help me figure out if this product that I have is going to work in the marketplace. So on the one hand, you're right about humility and when not to have humility about what uh, standardized measurement can measure. On the other hand, as I say, it tends to lead to, I would say, overconfidence in the measurable. And then the other side of this has to do with another potentially negative effect of metric fixation. And that is, it tends to work against innovation and against entrepreneurialism. Because after all, what's the nature of entrepreneurship? It's the adoption of risk. Because when you innovate, when you try something new, it's in the nature of things that you don't actually know what's going to happen. And it's actually unmeasurable what you're going to happen. So, to the extent that you are making your business decisions, purely or primarily on the basis of the measurable, that's going to help in many situations. That's going to help in, you know, fine-tuning things that you're selling or personnel processes and so on, or marketing. But what it's not going to help you is in innovating, in coming up with some new idea, some new process, some new product, some new way of organizing uh, business or sales or whatever, because entrepreneurship and measurability are in an important sense at odds. And so there's a way in which metric fixation tends to lead to risk aversion. I'll bet you there are relatively few accountants who are great entrepreneurs and relatively few great entrepreneurs are accountants. It's a different kind of mentality. And they both have their place in business. They both have their place in life. But if you see everything as a matter of accounting, and the measurable, then as I say, you're not going to have much entrepreneurship. When Jeff Bezos started Amazon, there was no measurable product there to begin with. Because after all, nobody bought books online. And after all, we all knew that nobody would ever buy stuff online because it was too unreliable. Oh, and a horrible PE ratio, for sure. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. So that brings me to the other issue that you've raised, stocks and stock analysts. So PE ratios are great for established companies in relatively non-competitive sectors. But if you're looking at future prospects, the PE ratios are always going to be bad. Yeah. And that's an important element of metric fixation as well, is that it leads one to 
underrate the importance of innovation, new prospects, and that sort of thing. Yeah, so I used to teach finance a lot. I found that the financial methods that you learn in business school are less and less relevant when you're talking about industries that are in constant turmoil. So I remember when I, it must have been 20 years ago when I was teaching finance, someone asked me if they should take finance class or golf class because they conflicted. And I said, well, you should take the golf class. But now they asked me if I should take the finance class or the strategy class. And I said, well, take the strategy class because if you're trying to evaluate a company using traditional financial metrics, any new company is just simply can't use it. It doesn't make sense. The metrics are actually, you're going to be more able to use metrics in an environment that's stable, in an environment where over time you can start to pick out patterns and start to develop techniques for measuring. You start the book with a reference to The Wire, a fictional world, which is not too far from where you are right now. And it's barely fictional. <laughs> and you talk about juking the stats. I like to reference that example in, in my class also. And I think this is a great example of what you call, you know, you refer to both Campbell's Law and, and Goodhart's Law. And I was wondering if you could tell us about those laws and then we could talk about some great examples of it. They're both variations of the same notion, which is when you have some measurement that is used for reward and punishment, it becomes unreliable. That's what it comes down to. I think that was the form in which Goodhart developed it. I've forgotten Campbell's exact formulation, but that's the thrust of it. And that happens for a variety of reasons. One is for the reasons we've already talked about. Another reason is because people, and this is where juking the stats come in, people game the metrics. That is to say, they do things in such a way that maximizes the metrics at the expense of the reliability of the metrics or at the expense of the larger organization. So, I mean, policing is a really interesting area in this regard, and it's very relevant for the current moment because there's various ways of improving crime rates or crime solution rates. One is simply when a crime gets reported to the police, when somebody calls in a crime to the police, whether or not the police actually write that down and report it is the first step in which the statistics can be juked, can be played. The second step is how you classify it. So whether you classify a particular crime as a misdemeanor or as a felony matters tremendously. Mostly national systems of crime reporting are only looking at felonies. So if someone beats somebody else up, you can classify that as assault, which it is, which is a felony, or you can classify it in, in some more minor way as a misdemeanor. So you can improve your stats, you can improve your statistics. If you're a politician, the mayor says, we've got to bring down the rate of felonies. And he says to the chief of police, your job depends on bringing down the rate of felonies or murders. He then tells the people lower in the organization, the precinct captains, your promotion or your raises or whatever are going to depend on the level of felonies. And they, in turn, tell the cop on the beat, so to speak. Well, in each of those cases, there's an incentive then to minimize the reporting of the crime, either to minimize whether or not you report it or how you classify it. And then, of course, we now have a process in many American cities like San Francisco where certain things that were considered crimes in the past are being decriminalized. So there you can essentially steal things up to $999 without the police intervening and without it being reported. Well, as a result, 
you're actually having a lot more theft, but the statistics probably aren't showing it. I actually witnessed this not too long ago. There was like, I saw a guy walk out of a store with a bag full of merchandise and, and a police officer apprehended him. And after an argument, he forced the guy to give the stuff back, but then he just let him walk. <laughs> I was like, wait, isn't that a crime? <laughs> right. And it's not going to show in the crime statistics. Right. So the uh, attorney there, the city attorney will say, look, our crime hasn't gone up, but if you run a Walgreens or you're a customer or whatever, you know that it has. So anyway, the whole area of policing and the phenomenon that we're referring to is by no means purely an American phenomenon. I mean, it happens in almost every country in which metrics tied to reward and punishment and transparency are used in the realm of policing. Yeah. Actually, when I lived in DC, a good friend of mine was murdered and there wasn't any closure happening. And so the friends and family put a lot of pressure on the police. And so finally they found some guy who was already basically getting a life sentence for something else and got him to confess. And I have zero confidence that that was the, the right guy, but they got a closure stat on that particular crime. But you also talk about medicine and medicine is an area which is particularly dangerous for this kind of metrics fixation. The example that I use in, in my class is this, there's this hospital in Redding, California. I think it was a tenant was the company that ran it. And they were like number one in U.S. news for, for heart survival rates after surgery, beating Stanford. Stanford was kind of at the bottom of the list. This was at the first. So people were flying from all over the country to get their hearts done at this place. And then it turned out they were just giving heart surgery to fully healthy people, like teenagers coming in off the street with a skateboarding accident. They were telling them, hey, you need to get a heart surgery. And it was only when they tried this out on some lawyer that the lawyer said, wait a second, this doesn't seem right. And I think it was like a $2 billion settlement or something, but is the problem with the consumers? I mean, if everyone was savvy and everybody was smart and everybody understood the limitations of these things, then U.S. News and others wouldn't be able to make any money publishing them. Right. So the first thing I got to say is when you talk to physicians and especially physicians that are involved in risky areas like oncology and surgery and so on, they will tell you that this phenomenon is ubiquitous of institutions engaging in what we sometimes call creaming or individual practitioners engaging in creaming or risk aversion, whatever you want to call it, in order to improve their statistics. So this was first discovered when I think about 15 or 20 years ago, New York and then Pennsylvania started the idea of surgical report cards. This was not done by U.S. News and World Report, which then moved into this area in the big way, but first it was being done by government that surgeons performing certain procedures would report on their mortality rates after 30 days. And of course, the lower your mortality rate, the higher your rating was, and this was made public. So there was a tremendous incentive, a reputational incentive for the surgeons, which ultimately has economic consequences too, right? The better your reputation, the more people want to pay to come to you. And as a result, it was found that there was creaming going on. That is, the surgeons would turn away people who had substantial comorbidities where the likelihood of successful surgery was less. Now, some of those people simply died who didn't get the heart procedure because it was too risky. Some of them went to places that were highly specialized, or they were even sent by their local doctor to a place like the Cleveland Clinic. And as a result, the stats for the Cleveland Clinic might look less good, but that's because they're doing really hard cases. 
And I think that's sort of analogous of what you're talking about. But this is much more ubiquitous. In, in my area, I was talking to an oncologist who told me that the healthcare system of a leading academic research institution turns away oncology patients with high degrees of risk and other systems then have to pick it up. And that keeps the ratings or the rankings of the academic institution particularly high. So yes, this issue of juking the metrics in terms of medicine is a huge issue. And there's another way in which I'm even more worried about metric fixation. And that is one of the striking phenomena that I think has gotten too little attention. Maybe you or someone at your school wants to pay attention to it is the way in which specialized practices in medicine, in areas like oncology or dermatology or whatever, are increasingly, first they became corporatized because of the need for electronic medical records and so on. But now those smaller corporations are increasingly being bought by private equity. And they are highly focused on metrics. And the question of whether, what effect those metrics that are geared towards profitability are having the treatment of patients and patient outcomes and so on, I think has yet to be investigated. Well, there's a whole other problem, which is sort of the substitution of intermediate metrics for final metrics, right? So if we're interested in people living longer and we think, well, lower cholesterol seems to correlate with living longer. So then we just focus on the cholesterol metric instead of the living longer metric. Or if you're a dermatologist, right, you're going to be evaluated based on how many people die of skin cancer. But if they die of vitamin D deficiency, like this is not your concern, right? This is not your problem. So you drill into some intermediate metric and lose sight of like why you were actually looking at that metric in the first place, right? Yes. And that's true in health and as you're indicating in a wide range of other realms as well. One of the key distinctions I make in my book, and I think people need to keep in mind, is the question of how the metrics are formulated and who sees the metrics and how the metrics are used. Because metrics are really useful when they're formulated in part by people with experience and judgment. And then when it's shown to those people, not attached to reward and punishment, but as a way of measuring their own performance as opposed to those of others or how one surgical unit is doing in terms of infection rates versus another surgical unit. If they can look at those statistics and see who's doing better, then the ones who are doing less good can consult with the ones who are doing better and perhaps improve their performance. So a lot of the issue with metrics is how much input there is from those with judgment in the formulation of the metrics, in the evaluation of the metrics, and in delinking metrics from reward and punishment. That's a key distinction that I think is sometimes lost on people. Yeah. So, I mean, I think if you have a dashboard, right? So when you're driving, it certainly helps to have some notion of how fast you're going, right? That's certainly helpful. I don't think anyone would argue that it's not a good thing to know, but if that becomes your sole objective to maintain a particular speed at the expense of all other things, or if there's some kind of objective function or reward punishment system associated with that to the exclusion of all others, that's when it becomes a problem. But in business, you talk a bit about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, and this is a huge area of research and organizational behavior. And it's rather delicate, right? Because on one extreme, if you focus entirely on extrinsic motivation, this is going to have all sorts of harmful effects. But on the other, if you just offer people flat salaries and 
the salary seems to be completely insensitive to your performance and people fail to get some kind of recognition or appreciation, which usually comes in the form of some financial benefit, then, you know, they'll also lose interest and that could be dysfunctional. So how do you strike that balance between recognition through financial reward and then this kind of like mechanistic, tightly coupled connection between a particular metric and a reward? So first of all, it depends on the nature of the organization. Not in all businesses, but in many businesses, the ultimate purpose of the business is to make profit. Extrinsic reward matters a lot to the business as a whole and probably matters to most of the people working in it to a greater degree. I mean, I'm not saying that's the only thing that motivates them, but it probably plays more of a role there than in, say, medicine or primary and secondary education, right? Nobody goes into being a high school teacher for the money. Well, I guess not nobody, but probably the people that you want are not the people going into it for the money. It's kind of like blood donation, right? If you, right. If you, if you offer money for blood, you're, you're probably not going to get the best blood, right? Right. Now, when it comes to extrinsic motivation in the form of promotion or in the form of uh, bonuses or salary boosts and so on, I don't think there's anything intrinsically, so to speak, wrong with that. I think it's absolutely necessary. The question there, too, is to what extent do you rely on standardized measurement and to what extent do you bring other considerations into the reward? So on the one hand, the advantage of standardized measurement, as we've already sort of mentioned in passing, is it tends to uh, be a counterweight to prejudice of various sorts. And politics. And politics, right. If you can show that your output was X, that's genuinely useful in combating politics and prejudice. On the other hand, there are all these elements that are important in an organization that we've referred to, cooperation, mentorship, innovation, and so on, that are much harder to measure. So I think a well-functioning system has managers who are making these decisions who combine metrics with judgment. Now, judgment always leaves room for mistakes, but metrics can lead to mistakes that can be highly misleading too. So my argument isn't that in such organizations you should try to do away with extrinsic reward. It's that you have to take a variety of factors into consideration. Well, I think the problem that executives or managers or system designers face at that point is like, all right, yeah, I'd love to just hand the keys to somebody who had good judgment. I'd love to just say, look, I trust you, make your decisions however you see fit. But the question then just goes back one level. How do I know that this person has good judgment? And then, then it's just, all right, well, I got to have good judgment in determining who's got good judgment. And then you're just, you know, it's turtles all the way down. Wouldn't we want to have some objective way of determining whether someone is good with their subjective assessments? There's a quasi-objective way of doing that, but it requires experience. That is to say, if you're dealing with some manager at some middle level of an organization, if over time you see that a lot of the good people under that person are quitting, or contrary-wise, you see well, this guy's unit is really highly productive over time, then that's probably a sign that they do have good judgment and or some other leadership skills. You can't tell it at any one point. It requires judgment over time. Another thing to do, again, this is easier said than done, but it is doable, 
is to consult from time to time with the people under that manager about how they feel about their work and how they feel about whether they're being more or less accurately judged in terms of these reward and promotion issues. That takes more time, but it has its advantages too. So I think in the medium run, in the long run, one can develop judgment about these things. You just can't do it from day to day. Let's talk about issues that are closer to home in the university environment. And I think that in addition to these metrics that are being applied to, say, professors and, and so forth, we also have these rankings and ratings of universities and universities are, are chasing after these, these rankings and, and ratings. And, and we're all thinking about, how, okay, how do we game this thing? I mean, I don't think anybody's ashamed. Anybody's hiding the fact that they're trying to game these things. I know at my university, we sat down and said, let's reverse engineer the algorithm and figure out like, how do we make this thing work? And I remember my favorite example of this was a law school that once they realized that the budget per student was one of the factors that mattered, they just absorbed a bunch of research centers. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it increased the size of the budget without actually, these centers had absolutely nothing to do with the, the training of lawyers or, or even legal research, but it managed to boost them in, in the rankings. That is a great example. Another one that goes on in law schools all the time is they're rated for U.S. News World Report and so on by the test scores of the incoming freshman students into the law school. So what a lot of the top schools do, but especially what the second-ranked ones do, is after the first year, they admit people from the third-ranking law schools <laughs> into the second-ranking law schools because those people's test scores don't get counted in by U.S. News and World Report because they're only looking at the first years. So that's another form of this gaming. But I would say the main way in which metric fixation affects education is in the measurement of graduation rates. If you look at the last 20 or 30 years in the United States, you see an interesting paradox, though it's explicable by metric fixation. On the one hand, the percentage of people graduating from high school and the percentage of people graduating from college has been going up from decade to decade. On the other hand, when you look at tests that evaluate the objective knowledge of these people, they've been flat or sometimes going down slightly. So how does one resolve this seeming paradox? Well, in order to graduate more people, you simply lower the standards for graduation. And this happens at all sorts of levels, including at the level, so in colleges, for example, if you admit someone and they're less than the top flight intellectually, they came in to become pre-med, but they can't actually do very well in biology. So they change their major to something easier, sociology or gender studies or what have you. And then they graduate with a degree in that. And there's pressure from university administrations to make sure that the pass rate in courses is high. The GPAs are higher, too. The GPAs, too. That's kind of student pressure, yes. But there's pressure to make sure that everybody passes. And how do you do that? Well, one of the ways of doing it is by lowering the standards for passing. And so this metric fixation in the whole realm of ratings and rankings and so on has had a highly distorting effect on the educational system and on public policy in regard to education. Because when you look at economists who deal with education, they often say, all right, how much are people who have a BA 
making as opposed to those who only have a high school degree or whatever. And they treat all BAs as if they were some standardized product. But of course, what getting a BA represents varies tremendously, depending on if you're an astrophysics major at Caltech, or if you're majoring in some easier subject at directional state university. Public policy people tend to treat these as if they were a single quantifiable, a single standardized metric, but it's actually highly distortive in terms of even thinking about the whole realm of education. Well, so, I mean, I think corollary to Goodhart's law is that any kind of time there's a, a signal, right, in a, in a signaling model, the, the signal will become less reliable over time because people will behave strategically. If the signal is tied to reward and punishment, yes, people will behave strategically, exactly. You also talk about the military. And I think one of the reasons why sometimes people are, are so caught off guard, you know, we look at what happened in Afghanistan, is that how could you be surprised by things like this? It, it had to be because you were focusing on the wrong metrics and everything looked just fantastic. And, you know, in Vietnam, your body count just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so that's supposed to be the, the measure of progress. So the military is an area where strategy is particularly important, where the fog of war and making decisions under uncertainty is really, really important. And so a lot of what you're describing seems to be a discomfort associated with uncertainty and to kind of fall back on the comfort of measurement. So it's not just that the world that we measure is the world we can control, but it's also kind of the world that we can almost feel good about. And that we can report back to our superiors and our congressional and senatorial committees about how many action events were there on the ground in Helmand province this month as opposed to a year ago. And the problem is the action events, that is to say, fire between American troops and their opposite, can either occur because the American troops were in the process of chasing the Taliban out of some particular area, or because the Taliban already controlled an area so thoroughly that there were no challenges to them. So you have a lot of the same problems that we've been talking about. That is to say, the desire for transparency, the desire for hard statistics that one can convey to the principles, in this case, the principles are the people on the senatorial or congressional committees. They want to see evidence. And so the generals have to provide this evidence and the commanders and the captains in the field or whatever have to provide that objective, measurable evidence to their superiors and, and so on. And that creates these distortions in terms of what gets measured and the whole question of judgment about whether what's getting measured is actually what it actually means. Well, toward the end of the book, you talk a bit about transparency, right? So a lot of this metrics fixation is driven by the belief that by creating transparency, you create accountability. And in this part of the book, you talk about kind of the benefits of opacity. And you say, hey, look, just like anything else, there's a happy medium, right? And there's costs and benefits associated with this. How can you argue against transparency? I mean, you know, Brandeis said sunlight is the best disinfectant. Democracy is supposed to be about open deliberation. In the darkness is where all the corruption hides. I mean, this is a rather provocative argument, right? That we need opacity, that we need to do some things in the darkness. Can you talk a bit about that argument? Sure. This varies from realm to realm. In the intimate realm, in the realm of marriage, say, do you want your spouse to know everything that you're thinking? And do you want to know everything that he or she is thinking? That would be perfect transparency. I'm not sure it would make for a particularly healthy relationship. In some realms, like the realm of intelligence, governmental intelligence, transparency is really the, the enemy of 
the goal. <laughs> the goal is to gather knowledge in ways that those from whom you're gathering it, who are presumably your foes or your potential foes, don't know that you're gathering it. So if you make your results transparent, transparent results that indicate the means that were obtained, well, you're destroying the basis of the whole enterprise of intelligence. In the realm of government, in the sense of elected officials, as Jonathan Rausch has pointed out, there's a lot to be said for deals made behind closed doors. Because if there's no doors and it's all windows and you see all the trade-offs that are being made, for every public policy issue, you have various constituencies that can mobilize behind a particular issue. And they don't want any compromise on their particular issue. And they may not see that in order to get half or three quarters of their loaf, they're going to have to give up a quarter of the loaf. And politicians sitting in rooms with either open windows or closed doors are going to face these choices between bargaining, meaning making trade-offs between their various goals and their various constituencies, and seeming uh, 100% loyal or orthodox to those particular constituencies. So Jonathan Rausch has made the argument that in this area of political decision-making, it's often counterproductive to have too much transparency. The argument's also been made by, I'm blanking on his name, but it'll come to me, that when it comes to inputs in government decision-making, that is, to what degree should email chains or informational chains that go into the making of governmental decisions, to what degree should they be made public? So it's been argued, and I think quite rightly, that it's a bad thing to have those made public because that means that people within government can't then give frank evaluations to their colleagues and their superiors about the advisability of a particular policy. Right. Everything's a performance. Right. If it's going to get out or immediately get out. And by the way, that's true in regard to government. I think it's true in regard to a lot of private organizations too. So the transparent slackification of so many major corporations now, like Facebook and Google and Netflix and so on, I think is probably uh, ultimately pernicious for those organizations. That is, complaints are voiced internally in Slack, and then they're made public. So that means you can't really have confidential internal discussions. And that's another example of where I think too much transparency can be a bad thing. I was wondering if you could tie this back to your earlier work. You wrote a lot about Adam Smith and I think Wealth of Nations is probably a whole lot more popular and better known than Theory of Moral Sentiments. And, and I always find that some people absorb the lesson of the one without necessarily absorbing the lesson of the other. And then even fast forward, you talk about Hayek, you talk about Marcuse, and you really seem at home with perspectives that some people might find to be directly in conflict. But I think you're able to kind of glean insight from all of them. Do you think that this book on, on metrics flowed logically from your comfort with seeing different sides of particular issues, your comfort with interdisciplinarity and your comfort moving back and forth between maybe theory and practice here, having been both a scholar and an administrator for one? Yes, I think that's a very good way of putting it. In some ways, I've come to think of myself as a arbitrager in the realm of ideas. That is, taking ideas, concepts, perspectives that are well-known in one discipline or are well-known in one political perspective and 
making them available to people who are from a different discipline or a different political perspective. And I think that's quite illuminating. So the whole Marxist idea of alienation in labor is a valuable conceptual tool. Not if you assume, as Marxists tend to do, that all labor under capitalism is alienated, and especially if, if you take their assumption that profit is based essentially on theft of the labor value of the workers. Those are dubious premises. But if you look at the way in which work can be more or less oppressive, and under what circumstances it's felt to be that way, that's a really important perspective. And it also links into some of the issues we've talked about, about extrinsic and intrinsic reward and so on. And one of the thinkers that I found myself surprisingly sympathetic to as a result of doing the book was Michel Foucault and his notion that the categories that we use affect the way in which not only we see the world, but the way in which organizations function and discipline people and so on. So part of metric fixation is about taking these categories of standardized measurement and rewards and penalties and making that the lenses through which organizational life is seen. And as you say, from Hayek, there's the notion of the pseudo-rationality or pseudo-science when it comes to various academic disciplines. He didn't apply it very much. He didn't apply it to the realm of business. He applied it to socialist economic calculation. But of course, the great irony is that, and we've sort of alluded to this already, is that a lot of that notion of centralized, standardized measurement and then reward and punishment which was the basis in some ways of the socialist or communist system, is now what's often being done in the realm of private corporations, right? So you, you can have this Hayekian perspective on the realm of private business to which he himself did not apply it, but to which it can be applied. So I think in all of those respects, being able to draw upon a variety of disciplines and a variety of ideological perspectives makes for a richer understanding. That's what I've, in a way, that's what I tried to do in The Mind and the Market on capitalism in modern European thought, is provide that variety of perspectives. I try to do even more, actually, in this teaching company, the course that I did called Thinking About Capitalism, that also tries to provide this variety of perspectives. And then in a more focused or concentrated way, it is what I try to do in The Tyranny of Metrics. Yeah, so if Good judgment requires the ability to try out a bunch of different metrics and think carefully about how to weight them and then to build buffers around them and be very careful about what you know and what you don't know. Presumably the, the same approach is required for understanding social phenomenon, right? As an academic, we all want to find the theory and find the framework which kind of illuminates everything to the exclusion of all these others. But good judgment in the social sciences presumably requires that you you're able to fully identify the potentials and limits of each of these different perspectives and then have the kind of judgment to assemble them in, in a mosaic fashion to ultimately figure out what's going on. And that's why people like Adam Smith in the 18th century or another one of my favorites, Joseph Schumpeter in the 20th century, is so interesting because although we sometimes talk about them as economists, and although Schumpeter, of course, was certified as an economist, they actually drew upon a variety of disciplinary perspectives. So the theory of moral sentiments, a lot of it is what we would call the realm of, it's between psychology and moral philosophy. It's what are the social processes? What are the interactive processes 
And what are the internal processes in our mind by which we become moral people? Schumpeter certainly was interested in, in a book like Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. He was interested in demography, politics, micro and macroeconomics, and so on. And of course, you're sort of alluding to the fact that there's a tension between professional specialization and often advance in the professional field in academic life involves a high degree of specialization. There's a tension between that and what you might call wisdom, which is having a broader, more holistic perspective. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for joining me. We could talk all day. We didn't even, I mean, look, this book, The Mind and the Market is really a masterpiece and we could probably talk about it all day if we, if we had the time. But A Tyranny of, of Metrics, most recent book, check it out. Also, Teaching Company, the Teaching Company course, which is called Thinking About Capitalism. Highly recommended. Thanks so much for joining me. Talk again soon. Good to be with you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.